0: The one thing that did go up was volatility. And the reason is because it's a mathematical formula and not a real thing. So you can count on it to go up when the market goes down. And so the option strategy came in like, hey, the CBOE just introduced options on volatility. Let's use that as a tool to hedge against downturns in
1: the equity market. You're listening to Stories from the Top, an inside guide to better business development. With Randy Warren, CEO, and are you CEO too?
0: CEO, just CEO, is just
1: fine. CEO yeah. of Warren Financial, and how do you like to describe the company?
0: So um, Warren Financial was founded by Bill Warren in the 1960s um, as a deacon ministry for a church in Wilmington, Delaware, and uh, it grew under him for the first few years. And I joined in like 2000. So we are a registered investment advisory firm and a fiduciary. We do better when our clients do better. We don't sell any commission products like mutual funds or insurance or anything like that. And we just focus on uh, building customized portfolios for our clients, um, focusing on alternative investments and risk reduction, that sort of thing.
1: Okay, cool. And, yeah, I was on your website just to uh, kind of show off some of your guys' experience. You guys are contributors to people like New York Times, Bloomberg, Fox Business, AP, Barron's Investment News. CNBC, The Wall Street Journal, Yahoo Finance, The Street, and Reuters. So, Randy and the team obviously have a lot of opinions that are welcome. So, yeah, you guys are doing really good. I know we're in the pandemic now, but let's. We want to start by just going back to the beginning. So, you, what did you originally go to school for?
0: Oh, so um, I went to school. My undergraduate is in computer science which has uh, helped a lot, actually, because uh, we've been able to build some really important uh, tools for financial planning for our clients. And so, um, you know, building those tools has has been very critical because we're able to customize them um, and, you know, really make them work in every situation that our clients throw at us.
1: Okay, cool. So did you think you were ever going to get into finance originally? No,
0: no, never thought I'd get into finance. I was a going to be a computer programmer uh i did that for like five years and i realized that there was more to the world than just writing code and uh, if i was going to uh, you know have an impact on the world i need to get out there and and uh, start interacting with it
2: was there like a specific um instance that made you make that choice to make the switch
0: yeah i I'm, i actually worked in r&d for a de- defense. Uh, you, uh, United States Defense Department, DARPA. Um, It's all their secret projects and all that sort of stuff. And we were doing very complex, very detailed, massive projects with, you know, 50, 100 programmers all working together on different parts of it and everything like that. And uh, at first, that was pretty cool. Um, But after a while, you realize that, you know, this really wasn't helping anybody. Mm.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I guess because you were working on these projects, was it for the military?
0: Or yeah, it was all military-oriented okay, defense, so defense department kind of things,
2: building things to destroy. And <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go quite that far; more like uh,
0: foundational stuff, okay, uh, operating you. system stuff. You know, things that would run machines and things like that, um, whether they're war machines or any kind of machine, but. Okay, but you didn't get that feedback from people saying, right. like, oh, you've helped me in my life. And no, absolutely not. Okay. I mean, actually, it was the 80s, and it was before the Internet, and uh, DARPA kind of put the first Internet together. Um, the, uh, they used to call it DARPAnet before it was called the Internet. And uh, so we used to do you know, cool stuff. We used to deliver software to them over this DARPAnet thing, which was ultimately to become the Internet. And uh, it was—it all came out of the Defense Department. It was really interesting stuff. I mean, being able to ship them product electronically from Philadelphia to Washington D.C. was mm. pretty amazing.
1: So, was there a specific moment that you're like, "I think I'm done working for DARPA"? <laughs> um,
0: it, it was more of a it. it more of a feeling that grew over time that it really wasn't accomplishing anything it really wasn't helping anybody and uh, that I really wanted to get out there and interact with people I wanted to learn business I went back to MBA school um, and got an MBA from uh, Westchester University and uh, that you know that really made me want to understand uh, how business functions and how we could actually make an impact
2: and your dad was running this business at that
0: time, is that right? Yep, he was running that business. He had retired from his core job in the '80s, and uh, he was just running it mostly, I'd say, as a hobby for the for the most part. Um, but it was growing, um, and he was working with more and more clients. And as you know, maybe don't know, but the market in the '90s was great. Um, you know, everybody was making all this money, and it was it was a good time to be in investing. And naturally after every good time comes a bad time. And so 2001, 9-11 and all of that um, ensued and recession ensued and everything like that. So it was a terrible time for me to jump in, but that's when I jumped in. (laughs) Um, I was finished my MBA at that point and the company I was with, we were building um, financial software for international banks. And uh, it was derivatives trading stuff. It was very cool, very sophisticated. It definitely was having an impact on the world uh, more than defense type of, of stuff. Um, and it was very finance related. Hmm. Um, you know, it was the, the cutting edge of finance at the time. Um, you know, op- really options. Uh, didn't mature until the mid-90s when some professors at various colleges, uh, University of Toronto, University of Pennsylvania, places like that, started coming up with mathematical models to value these things. Um, and the more mathematical models they came up with, the more complex and convoluted ideas people came up with. Um, and so it was really cutting edge wild west kind of stuff. Um, but it was really having a, a helpful impact on major corporations and ultimately on people's lives. So it was pretty interesting.
2: So um I'm curious. did your dad have influence over you on like to make the switch? Was he um you know putting pressure on you or anything like that to <clears throat> to join him?
0: No. Uh, I would say no, he, he really didn't. Um, I don't think he ever anticipated that I would join the firm and I didn't anticipate it. I mean, in in the, in the nineties, the business that I was in, you know, I, I started with a, it was a very much a startup company. I was the fifth or sixth or seventh employee, something like that. Um, and we grew to 300 employees. We were on the Inc 500 list three years in a row in the mid nineties. Um, the company was growing and expanding rapidly. Um, there was no concept of switching horses at that point. Um, and then the company um, ended up getting sold, and that changed things. You know, Because when the, the venture capitalists came in, um, it became a lot less of a, I don't know, a family-oriented project and a lot more of a business. And when year 2000, Y2K was a disaster for the company because our clients were all banks and major banks, and major banks stopped spending money on new software because they had all this old legacy COBOL software, maybe you've heard about this, like in the year 2000, mm-hmm. well, they had to fix all their old legacy COBOL software because the the calendar was rolling over from the 1900s to the 2000s, and they spent two years fixing all this old COBOL software and not buying any new software, which included not buying our software, and the venture capitalists were freaking out. <laughs>
1: My, my dad works for a banking software creation company. They use, they still use COBOL because right. it's like almost impossible to transition off of mainframes and yeah. rewrite everything. Like yeah. the way it's all, you know, it's all live software that they have to keep yeah. manually running on. And
0: to way. some degree, why would you rewrite it at, at some point? If it works, it works.
1: Well, that's, yeah, I think it was like five years. They just bought another like super old mainframe, a new old mainframe just to <laughs> keep things fresh. But right. it's crazy. Yeah, like um, there's a couple younger guys I know that. And it's like they're worth their weight in gold if they can program COBOL because yeah. no one knows it. It's like yeah. a dying
0: language. Oh, it, but... it it was dead 30 years ago. Yeah. It's it's even more dead now. <laughs> um, so you're right. I mean, if you can – I mean, any I guess any good programmer could learn to program in COBOL because it, it's much easier than the current languages in my view anyway, like Java and things like that. But you know, it would it would be easy for somebody to switch from Java to Cobol just to to make extra money, but it's not a good career move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so nobody's going in that direction. The world has gone away from that.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. So, when you came into the company, what what role were you playing, and what position were you in?
0: Well, I, actually, when I came into the company, I I wasn't playing any role. I just said, you know, my, I saw my father. Uh, still doing things the old fashioned way. Um, He was calling up brokers on the phone and making trades, writing things down on tablets and paper and pencils and stuff like that. Um, Not really using computers, that sort of thing. And here I am coming out of this, you know, high tech, cutting edge finance technology type of company. And I'm going, you know, there's a lot more efficient ways to do this. Let me just see if I can help you in what you're doing. And so it really wasn't a role. It was just like, I don't know what I'm going to do next. My company got sold. I got a buyout, which was nice. I didn't have to find work right away. And I'm like, let me see if I can help you. Let me see if we can transition this company uh, uh, into,
2: the, into
0: the next century.
2: And um, so we did. So what were some of the systems that you put into place to, to bring this technology in? So, I mean, first of all, just getting
0: computers, doing all the trading on computers um, instead of calling up brokers on the phone um, saved just massive amounts of time. I, I can remember vividly my father spending hours and hours and hours a day on the phone hmm. with brokers um, and you know sometimes all night long you know staying up all night and talking to, to brokers and whatnot um, but uh, you know you' doing all of that work on the on the um, computer so much more efficient so much mm-hmm. quicker so much easier just like today you think of you know access to information you know you can look up a stock you can look up a ticker you can pull up a chart all of this information that wasn't available back in the day. You know, you had to do it all yourself. Um, But when the, you know, in the 2000s, when the computer was really starting to mature, you could do all of that on a computer. And, you know, uh, discount brokers were coming online at that point, like Fidelity and Vanguard and other, um, you know, E-Trade and all of these Schwab, all these great discount brokers were coming online with tools. And those tools were really the kind of thing that I used to build for financial institutions. Um, they were building them for individuals. Um, so we immediately implemented complete computerization of uh, of the entire operation. Um, so all the trading became done on the computer. All the record keeping became done on the computer. Everything became done on the computer.
1: Was your dad resistant to that change or was it? Not at
0: all. He was 100% in favor of it. Well, but I also watched him struggle with the transition. You know, I mean, he was already... I don't know what age he was at the time, maybe 65 or 70. And, uh, you know, it was tough. It was definitely tough for him. Um, he he really wanted to understand computers. Uh, but, boy, it, just, it was just not the way he did business. So he's like, all right, listen, you just do the trades. We'll talk. You just do the trades. So I would do all the trading. Um, we would talk about what we wanted to do. And, really, that's the genesis of what we have today, which is a multi-person you know committee that talks about what we want to own and and where where we want to take um you know portfolios
1: was it just you and your dad at that point
0: it was Yep. so
1: just basically a sole proprietorship that you yep. came into and yep.
0: Hmm. yep first thing i did when i when i got there was incorporate it um so even before i got there i helped them get incorporated in 1999 um it because before that it was a sole proprietorship
1: and you went s corp
0: yeah s corp right away
1: okay Um, so once you started building, I guess, first thing was revolutionizing the technology in the building. What, what other stuff did you start? Like, was there something you noticed after that, that, okay, we got to start changing the way this is done?
0: No, uh, I think he had the, he had the basis of a really good company there. Um, the way he was doing things with integrity, um, the way he was helping clients, working with them, hand holding them. Um, you know, what needed to be added to all of that. I mean, he had the great, uh. A great mind for asset management. Um, what needed to be added was the the human element of wealth management. You know, sitting with a person and going over their particular plan. Um, so there wasn't a lot of that, and that that actually got added some some years later, um, after we got all everything computerized, and then we we bought uh, the the barn that we own, the three hundred year old barn. Um, started hiring employees. Started to grow the firm. like, hey. We need some you know, serious financial planning tools. And with my background, it's like, all right, this is easy. I know how to build this. Um, yeah, people sell that stuff, but they also charge a lot for it. So um, if we can build it ourselves, so much the better. Um, it'll be free to us, and uh, it'll be customizable for the client. Um, so we started adding a lot of uh, financial planning tools to the custom portfolios that we were already
1: building. Was, was there any kind of a learning curve for you jumping into technically a totally different field with investing in finance?
0: Yeah, what? there was. I mean, it, details, right? I mean, so uh, the previous company I was with, we were doing options trading. You know, human beings, you know, investors, retired investors, don't really want to do options trading, you know, um, for the most part. Some people do, but it's 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 unusual. Most people just want risk reduction. They want to hold on to what they've earned, they don't want to get killed too bad, um, you know that sort of thing. Those are the the priorities. They want to make money when the market goes up and not get beat up too bad when it goes down. Um, they're not really interested in, you know, hey, let's let's come up with some sophisticated options strategy, which was my previous company. So it was a transition. There was a lot of um, a lot of new things going on. Um, and, and a lot of ways that, you know, Hey, there's, this is different, you know, it's, it bring the, the institutional concept down to the individual level.
1: And you didn't feel a need to bring options trading in to Warren Financial?
0: I did actually. And, and so, you know, I, I wanted to start a hedge fund. Um, we didn't have the client base really to do that until about, until we started one, um, in about 2010, um, we uh, We had Mike Huckabee come in. We flew him in for uh, for a big presentation. Um, and it was the big launch uh, in 2010 at Whitford Country Club of uh, of the hedge fund. And part of what the hedge fund was designed to do was in two thousand and eight, we noticed that the market was going down, obviously. everything was terrible. and it and there was no, more opportunity for diversification to save you they used to call that a free lunch diversification would give you a free lunch what does that mean well it means that when stocks go down bonds usually go up or when the U.S. goes down Europe usually goes up that all ended with the internet because information flow was instantaneous so everybody knew what was going on all the time all around the world right away and so Everything became what they call highly correlated or moved together it didn't matter in 2008 whether you owed owned um, you know gold bonds stock it, it did whatever it is you thought was going to save you from a downturn through diversification didn't work mm-hmm. everything went down together you know gold was down more than 20 percent bonds were down more than 20 percent the stock market down more than 30 percent I mean it was just bad bad and more bad the one thing that did go up was volatility, and the reason is because it's a mathematical formula and not a real thing. But you, So you can count on it to go up when the market goes down. And so the option strategy came in like, hey, the CBOE just introduced options on volatility. Let's use that as a tool to hedge against downturns in the equity market. And so that was the genesis. That was the idea that basically launched the hedge fund. Um, and, it, you know, it ultimately became called the safer, Warren Safer Equity Fund because it is literally that. It's supposed to be safer equity.
1: And options usually are not associated with safety. you know You know what you're doing. Can you just briefly explain what option trading is for people who may not know what it is?
0: So um, hmm, I'll, I'll use an old example. I don't know if this is the best, but I, I used to use this when I was interviewing people at my last company. You say, listen, you can have an option on anything. An option is just that. It's, it's an option. It's an option to buy something in the future at a stated price. So think of a house. And you instead of buying your next house, you go to the owner and you go, listen, your house is worth 500 grand. How about we make a deal? I'll give you a little bit of money now. And if I get the option to buy that house anytime I want in the next 10 years for $520,000, most people would probably say that's, from my point of view, the buyer, that's a pretty good deal because it's probably going to go up more than $20,000 in the next 10 years. So all I got to do is wait for some amount of time to go by until the price goes above 520. That's called the strike price in the options world. So I have an option to purchase this thing over the next 10 years. Now, most options don't last 10 years, but that's just an example. Um, But, you know, that's how options work. It gives you the choice to buy something or sell something. You can flip this around and do it the other way. Um, Buy or sell uh, something at a stated price for some stated period of time. Um, and you know you think of, you start to think through those possibilities and try to decide whether you're making a good deal or not.
1: Mm-hmm. So you're you're paying a premium for a contract to buy something, not exactly
0: the itself. Exactly, you're not actually buying the house. Mm-hmm. You're just buying the option to buy the house, um, and it, and you won't exercise that option. You've already paid your premium that little amount that you pay up front to get the deal. You've already paid the owner something, um, but if the price of the house goes down or never goes above 520, you don't have to exercise that option. You can just let it expire in 10 years. So that's kind of the way options work.
1: Okay, cool. Thanks for going over that. Um, so how was your dad originally getting clients? You said he start. can you talk about kind of like his, how that it was a nonprofit at first you said? Yeah,
0: sure. I mean, yeah, at, at first, um, uh, My father's name is Bill Warren. So he he was on the deacon board at a a local church where we lived in Wilmington, Delaware, where I was raised. And, you know, in the 60s, uh, they came to the deacon board and they said, hey, guys, um, we don't have any kind of a pension plan for our pastors and our missionaries. Can somebody go figure this out? And I guess the head of the, the board asked my father and said, hey, Bill, can you go figure this out? And he said, well, listen, I work for the railroad. I'm a salesman for the railroad. I do intermodal piggyback rail. I, I don't know anything about this. And he's like, well, nobody else does either. So let's just go figure it out. So he's like, all right, I'll go figure it out. And um, so he started to put together plans um, for pastors and missionaries, and then other people just sort of said, hey, in the church at first, hey, can you also help me? And then their friends said, hey, can you also help me? And it just sort of grew and grew and grew by word of mouth. No advertising, none of that. It was a, just a very small little company, um, and it just grew by word of mouth for 20, 30 years.
1: So it was just really offering accessible help in people's finances. Exactly.
0: What? Yeah, just just being accessible and offering that assistance. Um, you know, surveys will show, you know, studies will show that people need some handholding. Uh, people need some help because it all sounds very easy when the market's going up. But right now, here we are in in 2022, and the market's been going down all year. And it's pretty miserable in the, in the market, whether it's bonds or stocks, they've both been losing money. Um, and, you know, People need a little hand-holding to make sure they don't shoot their foot off Uh, because what people, your your instinct, um, and this goes back to, you know, (laughs) caveman days, your instinct when something is going wrong is to do something, and many times doing something is the worst thing you can do. Uh, Not advocating for not doing anything, just saying, hey, let's be thoughtful about how we approach problems. Uh, Panic is not a, a strategy. Um, fear is not a strategy, um, but a but a thoughtful approach of tactically moving around assets to try to minimize losses and maximize gains will make a lot of sense in the long run.
1: So, when you came in, did you guys change up your str- like? Was it still just organically people coming in coming to you to join?
0: Definitely, um, we really never did we put up our first website i don't even know what year that was 2008 2009 probably 2008 2009 um, so i mean there was nothing no advertising no not even a website until that point okay
1: well that's that's pretty awesome to have that much word of mouth growth yeah. just out of the beginning. You know, yeah,
0: it was pretty, a great uh, start. Uh, it was a great start for the company. Um, as as my father got older into the, in the two thousands, he didn't really want to do it as much anymore. He wanted to just sit on the sidelines and and you know cherry pick, tell me what he thought, you know, and what what he would be doing and stuff like that. And that guidance was really valuable and and useful. Um, and so as I was got sucked into the business and starting to help people and really enjoying that and taking over the business. Um, You know, having him uh, in the background was really helpful. He was, he was all for it. Um, So yeah, it was a good, it it was a good start to, you know, the next generation.
2: So what, what methods did you use in advertising and marketing to grow this business from the hobby level where it started to where it is now?
0: Well, I think because of my background, I built our first website, which is kind of funny, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. You know, you guys know, um, you know, building a website, you know, putting together video, audio, doing podcasts, all this stuff is a ton of work. Um, but, you know, putting together a simple website is not a ton of work. I did that pretty easily. I, I actually was, it's kind of funny when you think about it. The first website we had was running on a Mac computer in our conference room. It's just sitting there it's hosted you know, on that computer hosted on that computer oh, if that not hosted by this, anybody yeah. if that computer went down or we rebooted it or whatever then the website was, was down temporarily wow. um so it was it was very homemade you know um you know now of course it's you know we're 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 on a hosting site and you know 99.9 percent uptime and all that you know in the cloud and all that sort of stuff so it, things have changed a lot in the last you know 15 years um but you know you start with a with a simple website Um, you're still doing a lot of word of mouth. I mean, websites don't drive business necessarily in our business anyway. Um, You know, if we were selling cupcakes, websites would drive business. That'd be great. Um, But we're actually, uh, you know, working with individuals' finances. And it's kind of a big decision for people, um, not a small decision. So um, they they like to meet. They like to know who they're working with. They like to know what you can do and how you're going to do it. Um, they want to talk about all the details, um, but eventually you start to get into things like, okay, once you have a website, you want to maybe do some Google advertising or at least do some search engine optimization. Um, so you start to work on that a little bit and you want your, your company to show up when people are looking for this option. So, you know, you do a little bit of that and then you you know, maybe do a little bit of Facebook advertising and, you know, it may, eventually we used you guys to shoot some commercials. Um, and we even did some TV advertising, um, and, and that's pretty cool. That's really, um, awareness advertising in our business. You know, we never expected the phone to immediately start to ring because we put an ad on TV. It just, you know, it's, it's not that doesn't work that way in this business. Like I said, um, people are very thoughtful about their money. They don't make quick decisions. They, they want to talk, uh, and they want to learn and they want to grow the level of trust that they have in you. Um, so it takes a little bit of time. Um, but you know, it, it does at least build awareness. Um, it certainly built awareness of uh, people that already knew us. They're like, "Oh, I didn't really know what you guys did. I saw your I saw your commercial. Tell me more about that." Um, so that was really cool, and that 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 helps. Um, and so, and then also doing CNBC uh, on a pretty regular basis over the years um, has helped a lot as well. I mean, we were doing CNBC as early as. I think 2009, something like that, um, way, way back. Um, we had a PR guy in, in New York City, um, Phil Norrie, and uh, you know, he, he was great, and he was able to get us spots on CNBC because we had valuable stuff to say. They wanted to hear about the hedge fund. They wanted to hear about options, but they also wanted to hear about wealth management and what do you tell clients, and that's often the number one question is, okay, here's the environment today, either good or bad. What are you telling your clients,
2: hmm.
0: you
1: know? There are a lot of those like contributor moments where you see advisors on those type of shows. Is that usually them reaching out to be on it? Like, is...
0: um, it's a it's a push and a pull. I would say uh, you know they need people, um, and advisors need them. Um, you know, most of the time uh, it's pretty tough for a smaller company like us to get on, but we have a a, a niche. That they were interested in, and um, so that that really helped us um, to to get our foot in the door. Even though we were small at the time in 2009, we were still a relatively small company with only a few people. Um, but you know they were willing to have us on. You didn't have to be a billionaire to be on, you know CNBC mm-hmm. at the time. Nowadays, you almost have to be a billionaire practically because mm-hmm. you know the world has changed. Um, Zoom has changed the world. Um, everybody's available all the time, 24 seven. CNBC wanted to talk to a person, they could reach out and that person would be like, sure, I'll just pop open my Zoom camera right here and you can talk to me and it'll be on TV. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, whether you're running a fund at Vanguard or Fidelity or whether you're running a hedge fund or whether you're, it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're in the finance industry, they can, they have access to everybody 24 7. Um, So that reduces the, um, the number of people that they can possibly speak to or get on TV, uh, you know, over the years.
1: So. so you guys were kind of able to get on the hot list with them before yeah. it became.
0: Yep, and we've established we've laid down a lot of tape, as you can imagine. So you know they can always go back and say, "Hey, that, that was a good segment. Um, that that guy's pretty good. Let's get that guy back on." Mm-hmm. And they, they they love it, of course, when you when you get two people on that dif- that have different opinions. Uh, right, right. You know that 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 just stokes the. Uh, mm-hmm the controversy. So, uh, you yeah, know, that's always fun.
1: Do you have like a nemesis they've put you on with multiple times? <laughs> uh,
0: my nemesis is always the guys who say every year there's, there, there's, they come out of the woodwork. There's all these experts, financial advisors, chief information officers for big companies. And they always say the same thing, which is, this is the year you should, you know, stop buying, you know, us equities and you should start buying emerging markets and every year they're wrong. And so every year I argue against them and I say, no, I don't, you know, it might be the year, but it hasn't been for a long time. And there's reasons for that. Um, So, you know, sometimes things are bad, not because, just because they're bad, (laughs) you know, Uh, another country just isn't doing well. And so the stock market isn't doing well um, in their particular country. Um, So emerging markets have been bad for quite some time. Um, It's been a little bit better lately because emerging markets tend to be very natural resource oriented, meaning translate into oil. And as we all know, oil's been going up. So that helps emerging markets a little bit in 2022. Um, And and that really just started at the end of 2021, Um, up until the end of the third quarter of last year. Emerging markets were still absolutely in the dumps. I think Brazil was down something like over 10% a year for over 10 years. That's pretty brutal. Hmm. Um, so, and China was down. I mean, it was just bad, 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 and more bad. Um Prior to 2008, it was a very different environment. You know, a lot of the emerging markets did really well. China was doing well. Brazil was doing well. You know, there was, it was a very different kind of market, and diversification made a lot more sense. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, the 2008 Great Recession, it changed the game. Um, and there's still a lot of people who don't know the game changed, <laughs> which is actually kind of, kind of funny. Um, I'm, I'm amazed that people don't just use common sense. And sometimes the, the same old strategies get taught in school. You know, it's like schools need to change too. When the world fundamentally shifts into a different gear, and it in the case of the internet and finance, it's a high gear. The world shifted into high gear in 2008. And uh, there's no going back. I mean, high correlations and, and instant information are, it's where it is, and it's not, gonna, not going back.
2: Mm-hmm. So like what do you mean when you say the, the game has changed what what changes need to be made
0: so it, you can imagine your investments if you if you look at them geographically for example um, and you you laid uh, imagine you had a, a log on the water and you put cans for every country you were invested in a coke can on the log and it was just sitting there and the water was quiet and everything was good. And you had, you could line up six, seven, eight different countries, each one representing uh, represented by a can. And then the water starts to get crazy. Well, in the old days, it wasn't a log on water. It was a log on firm ground. And so one of those cans might fall off because a country didn't do so well, but the other cans would be doing quite well and they, they would stay on the log. No problem. But after 2008, the world fundamentally changed and they all became what we call highly correlated and they all moved together. So now the water gets crazy and all the cans fall off simultaneously. It's not like a, oh, maybe this one will be good while well, that one's bad. That's Those days are over um, and it, it's not going back.
1: That's kind of like how like Bitcoin is now totally correlated with the market. It's like yep. Matt following it almost 100%. And
0: it's not because of Bitcoin being correlated in and of itself it's because the people are correlated right the mm-hmm. same people that are investing in you know stocks and bonds are investing in bitcoin um, you know you've got uh, and and especially you've got younger people investing in in the, the cryptocurrencies who haven't experienced things like 2008 as an investor haven't experienced things like 2001 1995 1998 uh, there's all these different moments in time in history and finance where lessons are learned and obviously lessons are learned in painful times um, quite often and uh, there's a lot of young people in the crypto world that have never experienced one of those lessons Um, and they're getting taught some lessons right now
1: Mm -hmm.
2: so uh like how do you keep your business growing during times like this of the economic downturn yeah, it's, it's very tough
0: um, to keep it growing. But what we have found as a, a relatively small company, we're not Merrill Lynch with millions of customers all over the country, right? Um, all of those millions of customers all of a sudden become accessible to us when there's a downturn because people start thinking, cash. I went to Merrill Lynch. I'm just beating up on Merrill Lynch mm. for no particular reason. <laughs> but you know, uh, you know, I, I went to Merrill Lynch because I thought it was, you know, an unassailable rock in the storm. And it's like because it was a big name. And it's like, and man, there's gotta be something better than this. Um, you know, and and there is, and you know, it's it's highly individually customized portfolios. Um, built by Warren Financial.
1: <laughs> you guys consider yourself more boutique? Definitely. Like a yeah, firm? we're
0: we're we're a boutique firm. We're not a big giant firm with millions of customers. We've got hundreds, not millions. Um, so we know our customers. We know them well. We know what they want. Um, we we know what their goals are and their strategies. Um, and we build their financial plans for them, and we build their portfolios for them, and that's all in one place. It's not like, oh, the people in New York built the portfolio, the people in, you know, Naples built the financial plan, the mm. people over here built, you know, the the cash flow model. The people, you know, it, no, it's it's all integrated. It's all boutique. It's all one group of people doing all the work for all the clients all the time.
2: So you're saying because you have a closer relationship with each of your clients, you can customize their portfolio yeah. and match it to their needs, and and therefore perform better for them.
0: That is our goal. Absolutely, that's exactly what we're trying to do, um, and and we're trying to give uh, clients the experience. So larger clients, you know, they walk into Goldman or Merrill or wherever, and you know, say they've got a hundred million dollars. Well, you know, that's the kind of client that those guys want, mm-hmm. right? But you walk in there with 1 million, 5 million, 10 million, they'll take your money, but they're going to forget your name the minute you walk out. You walk in here with 1 million, 5 million, 10 million, we love you. <laughs> you know, that's that's who we cater to. That's our client base. We're not trying to um, get the 100 million dollar client. Goldman can have them, you know, that's fine. But what we are trying to do is we're trying to bring the Goldman experience all the way down to the 1 to 10 million dollar client. Um, and that is a struggle, and that is a challenge, and that is what we strive for—to really give the smaller investor, still a high net worth—they call that high net worth investor—but still, um, you know, give them everything that they could get if they had big money.
1: When did you guys decide to start moving in that direction of offering more and more to smaller investors instead of? okay, we want bigger investors to make more. Like, what was the decision behind that?
0: Well, as as we grew as a company, Warren Financial, I mean, I, I can remember even before I was with Warren Financial, when my, it was just my dad. You know, it was a good day when, like, a new client came on board with, you know, uh, $250,000, $500,000, $700,000. That was a big new client. But as the company grows, you get more clients that are bigger as well. You still get those those initial clients at 250, and you're still helping those clients at 500,000, 700,000. But you're getting a lot more people with the, the million, million and a half, two million. And as the company grows, they just keep on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But we really do want to focus in on that segment of the market that's that, you know, one to $10 million segment, because it's an underserved segment of the market, we believe. Um, it's underserved that, you know, the big boys don't really want to service that, Um, it's too big for the small companies, it's too big for the do-it-yourselfers, it's too big for people just to go, well, I'm just going to buy a bunch of mutual funds and forget about it. It's like, um, you get ready for retirement and you've got a million and a half dollars in a 401k, that's a lot of money. And, you know, we always say that, you know, it's great to have an advisor in good times to help you make money, but when you really need an advisor, when you really need some help, is when the storms come. And, you, you know, if you don't have a good captain of your ship when the storms come in, your your ship could sink. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. That would be bad. Um, so you really want to avoid that. And so having a good advisor in the tough times is even more important than in the good times.
2: Well, I had a question. Um, so what do you say to the investor who is not yet at like a million dollars, somebody who's just getting started? Um, we say
0: like- let us help you get there.
2: Yeah. So you're going to help it. them as well. We actually
0: have a very long history, starting with my dad. I mean, he never had a client over a million dollars, I don't think, that started with over a million dollars. Many of his clients ended up with over a million dollars. We have a long history of turning small investors into big investors. And we we celebrate that. You know, whenever that happens, it's, it's, it's a good day around here. Um, and that's happened, you know, over and over and over again over the years. And it's very satisfying.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. With like the compounding gains over time that's like exactly probably once you cross that $1 million of, where It's like, all right, now we're getting ready to start running, you know?
0: Right. Exactly. And, you know, the world opens up in terms of investment opportunities, uh, and that's by, you know, congressional and SEC regulation. You know, the the SEC won't let small investors invest in, you know, real estate projects and, you know, venture capital and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, I know there's, there's, you know, GoFundMe and things like that. And, and but those are small, right? They're they're tiny investments. Um, but for, you know, good, really good opportunities, like think of Uber or Airbnb before they went public. How do you get into that as a small investor? You can't. Um, you know, if you really want to get into that, it's, it's going to be through venture capital. Um, and you're going to need to be an accredited investor, which means over a million. Um, so once we get those smaller clients over a million, a whole new world of opportunity opens up to them. Um and we wanna make sure that we have those opportunities available because they're 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 diversifying opportunities, they're risk reducing opportunities, and they're even potentially return enhancing opportunities.
1: I'm glad you brought up regulation because yeah, your field is super regulated. I know like even in advertising you have to be very careful what you say and how you say it. Yeah. Very careful making promises and stuff. Was there any type of stuff you had to put in place coming from a sole proprietorship to corporation where you started really getting serious, bringing on bigger people?
0: Definitely. I mean, it, it, the regulation side of this business has has absolutely been a challenge. It is very difficult to start in this business uh, as a small company because it's so heavily regulated. I don't want to say they don't give you a break because maybe they give you a little bit of a break, but it's not much. I mean, the rules are the rules, and it doesn't matter whether you're you know a giant multi- you know, millions of customer advisor or you're a boutique advisor. You still got to follow all the rules. The rules are the same. And so, you know, every, every five to so five or seven years, whatever, um, the SEC will come in. That's what they do. That is their job. They're going to do their inspection every, every few years. Um, and, you know, they do a great job of inspecting. <laughs> <laughs>
2: right. I feel very inspected when they leave. <laughs> Did you ever have any, like, times where you got, like, burned by the SEC or anything? No,
0: I mean, it, it, we work hard at it. It's it's not easy. Um, it's not easy being a small company um, that has to work hard at meeting all those regulations. Um, but we do work hard at it. And, you know, everybody around here knows, like, hey, when you do that, you got to, you know, with, with regulation, it's all about, what did you say you were going to do? Did you do it? And do you have any, any evidence that you did it? Mm. So saving evidence that you did something. Like norm, a normal person would be like, okay, I did that. Moving on. It's like, no, wait, there's one more step. Saving evidence that you did it. Showing, so because when they come in, they're going to ask, okay, what did you do? And you're going to say what you did. And they're going to say, well, do you have any evidence that you did that? We'd like to see some so that we can verify it. And it's like, oh man, I threw all that away. No, you can't okay. do that. You have to keep all that evidence.
2: So, what would happen if, like, for a person who didn't have the evidence, or if they were not in compliance? Like, what would they do to that person?
0: They could shut you down. I mean that's their that's their role. I mean, if it's really egregious, they will. They'll 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 they they've been in the habit of not shutting down companies, but in in ter- finding them. You know, um, you know, we've never been fined thankfully um, but you know we work really hard at trying to make sure that doesn't happen
1: isn't there like a database too that's like the permanent record for advisors there
0: is yeah get- the sec maintains that broker it's called broker check um, you can go on finra or on the sec website and you can look up every advisor there's a ton of information in there so for people that are thinking about hiring an advisor it's recommended go there read it i mean it's going to bore you you know it's going to probably cure insomnia but <laughs> Um, But it's all out there. You know, how many clients does this person have? Or not person. How many clients does this company have? How many, um, you know, how much assets are they managing? What is is it that they try to do? How do they do their research? You know, all of that is is publicly available uh, through SEC and FINRA websites. And most recently, I'll I'll just give them a plug here. They, they, They invented a new form. Now when the SEC or Congress or anybody invents forms, it's usually horrible, right? I mean, forms are just bad in general. It's like, you don't learn anything from forms. Hmm. However, the CRS form or customer relationship summary form is a one page front and back form and it cannot be longer than one page. You have to answer these like seven or whatever, nine questions in their format in this amount of space. It's a fantastic form. If anybody wants to learn real quick about what an advisor is doing and how they do what they do and what they charge and all that kind of information, it's all on the customer relationship summary form. It's a, it's a great resource. So you don't have to wade through hundreds of pages of junk. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I mean, like, for example, you buy a mutual fund and they, they give you their, you know, their, their brochures, you know, 75 pages long. And who's going to read that? Um, You think, you know, what you bought but here's 75 pages of detail that you're never going to read. It's like, Oh, (laughs) wow.
1: Yeah. I'm sure communication is very difficult when you're talking to your people who are, have no financial field information. So like, did you guys adjust anything coming from the, in the building phase? Kind of, I guess we can say 2000, not from the website on was kind of really where things started running. did you guys start changing your communication methods or updating that to definitely
0: adding to them, uh, changing them, all of that. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, Email became much more important over the years. Like back in the 90s, email wasn't that important of a way to communicate with people. And, and I and I think it, you know, I don't want to say that, um, I, I want to avoid saying that most of our clients are retired. They're not. A lot of them are retired, but you've got a lot of people who are in their 50s that are getting ready to retire. And you've got even people in their 30s and you've got people in their 90s. And um, it's a pretty wide distribution, but the there's a... Uh, what do you call that? Uh, uh, when a snake eats a, a rat, there's a big hump in the back of the snake, right? And you, you see that, you know, it, it's got to work its way through. And as that demographic moves through time, um, as people get close to and get into retirement, they decide how they want to be communicated to. And for a while, it was, you know, phone calls and seminars and things like that. And then it was, you know, seminars and email and things like that. And now it's shifting into texting. Um, But all of those things, those shifts in demographics are what drives that. It's what the customer wants, how they want to be communicated to.
2: Mm -hmm. So what, what currently is your sales process when you go from meeting a potential client to kind of closing that deal? What does that sales process look like? So
0: What we want to do with a client, we want to, of course, tell them who we are and what we do and why we're different. But it's not about us. It's about the client. It's about learning from the client. um, Why are you here? What caused you to seek out some advice or an advisor in the first place? And What does that mean? Is it because you're getting ready to retire? Is it because you sold a business? Is it because you started a business? Is it because your family changed through divorce or marriage or inheritance or some other, you know, what, and then what's important to you? What are, what are those goals? That's like
2: you're saying, what's your greater purpose, right?
0: Exactly. What's your greater purpose? And if we can find that out, that's very valuable. And then we say, you know, Hey, let, let's, let's find out what those goals are. What happens if we solve those goals? How will it make your life better? And then a really important question is how will we know six months from now or a year from now, and when we look back, if we're meeting those goals? So, you know, your expectations, how will we know if we've been a successful advisor for you? So these are the kinds of questions that we like to find out from, from potential clients, what can we do for you? How can we help you? What are your goals and how will we know if we're successful? And once you get all that information and once – because a lot of times the prospect hasn't even thought all that through themselves, you know. And when they start to think that through, they're like, okay, these guys, first of all, are listening to me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's really important. They're not just, you know, putting a a square peg in a round hole. It's like, okay, thank you very much. Here's the manufactured project, the product that you get. Uh, Here's the – you know, annuity that we're going to sell you because that's what we do. We sell you annuities. It's not what it's not what the co- the company does that's important. It's what the client wants that's important. Um, so that whole sales process it takes some time, and through that process, it builds by asking those kinds of questions. It builds trust. Right. And you do any survey with clients of wealth management or anything like in the finance industry, trust is always comes up as the number one reason why did you select the person that you selected right. trust
2: because that's their whole life savings exactly
0: it's really it becomes it becomes a that's when people come to Warren financial when it becomes their life savings when it becomes really important to them to grow and preserve their wealth um, that's when they that's when they show up on our doorstep
2: so how long does that process of building trust take
0: so you know if you don't know them at all it's going to take longer if you already know that person through some other Means maybe you you met them at church, or maybe you you know we work in a charity and we're working alongside somebody um, and we're getting to know people that way. Um, and then you know, or maybe we're just in a club. You know, one of our advisors is in a motorcycle club, and you know he meets he he's met a lot of people in the motorcycle club, and um, you know eventually you know people find out what you do and they're like, oh, you're one of those guys. No, no, I'm not one of those guys we are different. Oh, how are you different? Well, we do this differently. We do that differently. We don't have millions of clients. We're boutique. Um, You know, we're custom. We have alternative investments. We do risk reduction. Yeah. All these, all the things that make us different from our competitors and people are like, oh, so maybe you're not just like everybody else. You're not going to try to sell me anything. Nope. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And it starts to build that trust.
2: I mean, but is it a process of weeks, months, years?
0: Yeah, I mean, if, if you already know the person, it can take a couple weeks. If you don't know the person at all, like if you just met them, um, it could take a couple of months. Mm. Um, but, you know, once somebody makes that decision, it's not like they're done making that decision, I think. You, you said years. Years sounds like a long time to me. But I think people make a decision thinking that things are going to work a certain way. And then if you're meeting their expectations, that trust continues to grow. Eventually, the trust is so rock solid that, yeah, they're not really thinking about it anymore. Mm -hmm. They're like, okay, you know, we trust these guys. We know what these guys are doing. They're working every single day to, you know, accomplish our goals.
1: And you guys don't have, like, contracts in the industry, right? They can come and go as they please, essentially.
0: Well, there still is a contract. There has to be, by law, a contract, an agreement, if you want to call it that. We keep ours pretty simple. Um, But, you know, in in our agreement, people can come and go anytime they want. So we have to earn our keep, so to speak, Mm -hmm. every day. Um, you know, we try to add value to everything, uh, in the finance world. So we try to add value by being holistic and doing taxes for people, um, or outsourcing complex taxes to our CPA groups that we have. Um, we try to add value by doing, you know, estate planning for people, um, you know, all, all of these sorts of things. So adding value, making sure that the clients are getting everything that they need in one place.
1: Um, So, yeah, speaking of adding value, too, I want to talk about a little bit when you were starting to grow. What what did you guys have to figure out when you were hiring people? Like, I guess that was a new process. Were you in a management position before with hiring? I
0: was. In my previous job, um, I I was in charge of building the products for the major international banks. So um, I started with just a couple of programmers under me, and I hired probably several hundred people. Over the years in that in that job, and you know you learn a lot through that process. Um, I even had to let a few people go that didn't work out. Very few, but you try to minimize that as much as possible because it's not fun. Um, so in, in hiring people uh, in a small company, it's even more important. The smaller the company is, the more important it is that people buy into the culture of the company, they buy into the um, objective of the company, they buy into the brand, like you mentioned, investing for a greater purpose. You know, they buy into what that really means for the customer and they start to understand. So, you know, the smaller the company is, the more important every one of those
1: hires is. So what what kind of like, how, what how did you go about finding people who bought into the brand and all that?
0: So I, I've never done an ad on Indeed. <laughs> Mm -hmm. or any of those kinds of systems. Um, I don't wanna just meet strangers and try to interview them in this kind of a role. Um, in my last job, you know, we were hiring programmers, so it was, it was actually pretty easy. We didn't mind at all hiring people coming out of their master's degree program at Villanova or uh, for computer science or their master's degree program or their undergraduate in, in computer science from Delaware or, you know, all the different schools around here. So there was a, there was a ready supply of potential programmers, and their personal views didn't really matter too much. Right, I mean, it was programming. It was coding. Um, What they were going to code was decided. They just had to figure out the best way to do it. Um, So their their personal views didn't matter. But here at Warren Financial, every employee is so critical. Every employee is interfacing with the customers, and their personal views have to align. And so I I never go outside to people I don't know. I always try. I find people. You know, I hire a lot of, uh, you know, clients, kids, uh, friends, children, next generation, that sort of thing. People that I know, um, to, to try to make sure that, you know, we're all on the same page. It's a little bit easier that way.
1: Mm -hmm. And like in the management process of that, was there any trouble you had to work through with like you know, someone may not have been a great fit or you wanted to find someone with a different skill set.
0: We haven't had anything like that at Warren Financial. In my previous job, sure, we had that because we had so many people that we hired. So naturally, you're going to get some that, you know, tell you one thing in the interviews and whatnot. And then the reality is they can't really do what they said they could do. Um, (laughs) So uh, one of the things I did at that job was I implemented a test, a programming test. So people say that you, you say you're a programmer write me some code, show me that you're a programmer. Don't just, and it, it started out, it was five questions. And the first one was very easy and they each got subsequently more difficult. When you got to number five, it was like relatively sophisticated stuff. And you know, didn't really expect everybody to be able to do that right off the cuff without thinking about it. But if they could, that was really impressive. Um, and if they couldn't, they got to number four, that was pretty good. Um, they only got through number one, then there was no second interview. (laughs) (laughs)
1: so yeah well we talked about your brand a little bit what was the thought process behind was that like something you thought we needed to develop kind of a new presence when we're going out or was it we just need to have a brand in general
0: yeah i think the the brand kind of guides you both internally and externally and it says something about what you're trying to accomplish um you know one of the best brands branding exercises ever i think um was you know at Ford quality is job one. They implemented that brand at a time when American car quality was not the highest. And so it said something not only to their customers, but also to their employees. Hey, guys who work here, You all you thousands of people, quality is the most important thing. If there's something wrong, stop the presses, stop the assembly lines, fix it. Quality is the utmost important. And quality improved. Um, and they said something to their clients as well, which is, this is this is what we want to give you. We want to give you a quality product all the time. And so at Warren Financial, it's in investing for a greater purpose. It's like, why do we invest? What is the reason that we invest? It's not just about, oh, I want to beat this or that index. If that's the only reason you invest, then when the indexes go down, how do you feel? Well, you're riding that index all the way to the bottom. You know, um, that's pretty painful. Uh, so it can't just be about indexes and esoteric objects like that. It has to be about your goals. It has to be about a reason why you invest. And you know, when when we've talked to our clients and when we find out what their um, greater purpose for their reason for investing really is, whether it's grandchildren or to set up educational funds or to, to leave a legacy, um, to leave a scholarship legacy or or to leave a legacy for your family or whatever it is that people are investing for, um, a charity that they so dearly are involved in and believe in or a school or an alma mater or whatever it is, uh, it's, it's really powerful. Now we've got a reason why you're here. And it's not just oh, I just want to make money. It's like, well, that doesn't, you know, the market doesn't always make money. 80% of the time it makes money, but right now we're in one of those 20% times when it's not making money. Um, And if the only reason you're there is to make money, then you're going to run when the market goes down and you're going to shoot your own foot off. Um, So, you know, finding out what your real purpose is, is really valuable.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that's also a, like obviously you had all your regulations and stuff you had to work within when doing your branding because there's messaging involved in that. Exactly. So I think you guys did a really great job with that, I think. Thanks.
0: Yeah. It, you you <laughs> regulate regulatory, you can't really say superlatives. You can't say, we're the best at blah, blah, blah. You can't say that. Because you know, hmm. how are you going to back that up? So it's it, you're not allowed, literally, uh, to say things like that. So you have to you want to try to say something to people that's meaningful, um, that means something. Like I said, with the Ford example, it means something internally and it means something externally to people.
2: Hmm. I guess the SEC would come in and ask for evidence that you're actually the best. <laughs> exactly. You have prove it's
0: it. Like, well, yeah, prove it. What's your, <laughs> where's where's the uh, where's the evidence? What did you do to 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 prove that? Yeah.
1: So, um, we obviously talked about Merrill Lynch a little bit negatively earlier. Did you guys ever have competition you came up against or people that,
0: um, you know, I I think not really, um, you know, there's a certain person who will never come to a smaller company because they just feel more comfortable at a big company, but there's people, open minded people who are like, Hey, maybe a smaller company can do more for me, um, and, and the idea of being a big fish in a small pond, um, that's very appealing to some people. Um, being a small fish in a big pond maybe isn't as appealing to some people. So there's different types of people. Um, and there's different different firms of all different sizes. And what they do is different. Um, you know, at, at some of the big firms, you're going to get very, I call it watered down, but we'll call it institutionalized um, portfolios. You know, not everybody gets a Purely custom portfolio. And um, one of the things we like to say to people is everybody tells you they're going to give you a custom portfolio, but what that really means is they're going to put you in one of their pigeonholes, and that's custom to you. It's not really custom. And so, what I like to say is no two of our client portfolios is identical. And people go, What? That's impossible. Saying, like, Nope, every single portfolio is built from the ground up for the customer. It's like, oh, okay, now I understand what custom means.
2: Mm -hmm. So it's that customer service that is really what sets you apart.
0: Yeah, it's the customer interaction. The fact that we know those customers, we know what their goals are, we know where they're going, and, and we're trying to service them in particular.
2: And I would imagine that takes more time than just doing it the other way. So do you find that you guys spend a lot more time interacting with your clients than say other competitors?
0: You know, And that, yes. But I'll also say that goes back to the trust factor as well. When somebody's been a client for a long time, we almost have to like beg them to Talk to us because they're like, I don't need to talk to you. I know what you're doing. <laughs> it's like we we've seen this. We've seen this show year in and year out. We know what you're doing. And whether the market's up or the market's down, we know what you're doing. Um, and uh, they're they're confident and they have a high level of trust. Um, and you don't expect newer clients to have that level of trust. And they you know they they have a lot more questions. How's this going to work? I've never been through this with you before. How's this going to play out? Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, yeah, you got to interact with them a lot more.
1: Yeah. And I guess too, in like turbulent times, like we're kind of in right now, it's more important than ever to just stay in touch. Like, Hey, everything's under control. It is.
0: You mentioned how do you communicate with clients before? And you know, one of the things that we implemented, I don't remember when we did, it's been quite a while back, but um, was we write our own newsletter every quarter and send it to all the clients. Um, And, Part of what's in that newsletter is, hey, here's the environment that's going on. But another part of the newsletter, the back page, is always, what are we going to do? What's the strategy? How are we going to adjust things to adjust for this new environment that's happening? Um, And so – it. If people don't want to read all the nonsense about, hey, I, kn- I already know inflation's happening in 2022. I already know that the Fed's raising rates. I don't need to read about that. Let me just find out what Warren Financial's going to do for me in this environment. Flip it over to the back page. Here's six bullet points or whatever, some number of bullet points that tell you exactly what we're going to do for you in this kind of an environment and why we're doing it.
1: How have you guys dealt with when you have like a, I, don't, I guess like a disruptive client, I could say someone who's real... Finicky about stuff. He's expecting someone like your dad on the phone yelling at brokerages all day, doing his trades. Like, how do you deal with that when you have a client who's not happy?
0: You know, we always assume the client is right, and we want to try to help the client in in all cases. Um, it's obviously difficult when somebody's unhappy, but you you want to find out why. You know, what is it that's making you unhappy? Is it something that we did? Is it just the general malaise of the market? Is it because the market's going up and my portfolio didn't go up enough or went up too much, or you know what, what's going on? What's making you unhappy? Um, and is there anything that we can do about it? Because you know when you only have when you have a, a relatively small number of customers, not millions but hundreds, um, you know those people and you're like, "Hey, how can I help you? You know that's what we're here for. We're here to answer your questions. We're here to provide service. So how can we help you? Um, how can we turn that frown upside down? Somebody mm-hmm. else said that. Yeah. I don't know who said Simpsons that, but quote. it just popped into my head. That's, <laughs> that's a quote from somebody else. I didn't make that up.
1: So, yeah. So, um, obviously you guys are always looking for new clients. Who is a good candidate for you guys right now?
0: So, uh, a good candidate for us, it's, it's usually better for us when somebody's already had an advisor and they know what it's like to be at Wells Fargo, or they know what it's like to be at Raymond James, or they know what it's like to be at Edward Jones, or they know what it's like to be with an insurance company or whatever. Um, and then they come to us and they go, wow, you guys are different. We see that you're different. Um, and that usually works better for us. That that That's a good thing for us because we do try to be different. We do try to provide you know additional services and additional uh, risk-reducing opportunities for people. Um, so that, that's usually a good thing.
1: Yeah. Now I know you guys like in current state of the company, you guys have a lot of different stuff. You're kind of not, I guess you're starting to move into more private equity stuff a little bit with you know, with some real estate options and stuff, what kind of stuff are you guys like moving into moving forward to continue growing?
0: Yeah, I mean, what we've done is, you know, we're, we're a company, uh, a small company, we don't have I- immense resources. So we, we needed to build partnerships for all of those things. Um, so we have a company up in New York City who does venture capital. They're great at what they do. I mean, they've got 35 or 40 people just doing venture capital all day, every day. And they've got, you know, the 400 largest venture capitalists feeding them deals all day long Um, as those deals are happening because they're our partner because we invest with them we get an opportunity to cherry pick and look for deals that we like for our clients so we couldn't do what they do because without starting another 40 person company but we can have a partner that's doing what they do and we can cherry pick same thing with real estate we have partners that are doing real estate, um, that are doing development projects in, you know, Huntsville, Alabama, or in Dallas, Texas, or Vero Beach, Florida, those sorts of places. And those those partnerships are really valuable for our client base because we sit there, we sit back, we look at all the opportunities that we have available. We try to build new ones. We try to curate and vet those opportunities. And then when we see one that we really like, that we think is going to be really valuable, we offer those out to the clients, and we say, Hey, listen. We think this is a good one. We've passed on a whole bunch, but we think this one is a good one. Um, you know, we recently, back in uh, you know, just a couple of months ago, we we passed on a uh, one in uh, in Dallas that we thought, eh, you know what? The time frames were pretty tight. People would have to get money in pretty quickly. The minimums weren't too bad. They were only fifty or a hundred thousand. That's not too bad. Um, But the tie up, the amount of time it would take for the real estate to be developed and then sold was a little bit on the long side. It was like an 18% IRR, which is great. I mean, that's much better than I think a lot of the institutional alternatives are offering, which is probably more like nine. Um, So that would have been good, but the timeframes were tight. And it's like, ah, let's not do this one. Um, And then we had another opportunity, same internal rate of return um, projected, um, you know, so 18% IRR, but it was in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, and we liked that opportunity a little bit better. Um, and we offered it out to just a few people because it was only 18%. If it was over 20, probably would have offered it out to everybody. Um, but a few people who were asking us, hey, I'm looking for the next real estate opportunity. I want that. Okay, we'll put you on the list and you know contact you when it comes up. Um, but if we find a really good one, like a 25%er, Or something like that. Then it's like, oh, let's contact everybody. Let's tell everybody about it. Let's make sure everybody knows. Put it in the newsletter. You know, the whole nine yards. Um, This is a primo cherry opportunity that we think that people would should be interested in in jumping on board.
1: Yeah, and those are awesome opportunities. That I think we were talking before. They were saying that like people like Merrill Lynch to keep piling on them. Like you have to have a lot of money before they leave in. Yeah. open the doors to that kind of investment.
0: They don't open the doors to that kind of stuff until you're the $100 million client. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So to be able to access that on a small level is super awesome. And it has to separate you from a lot of the smaller firms in the area or even
2: anywhere.
0: Yeah. It, it, even from bigger, much bigger firms than us. I mean, firms that are, you know, I mean, you know, 10, 20, 100 times bigger than us. I mean, they're still not doing this sort of stuff. Um, you know, there's when there's an un fortunate disadvantage of being large, which is the people that are curating the opportunities don't know the customers. And the advantage that we have is the people curating the opportunities know the customers. Um, So we know what they're looking for. We know what they want. And when we see it, it's like this, here we go. This, this is a good opportunity. Let's talk to people about this one. Let's talk to everybody about this one.
1: Okay, cool. And that pretty much covers most of the content we wanted to cover. Um, did you wanna leave us with just kind of a market outlook, what you think's going on now and where we're headed?
0: Oh boy, a market outlook and a down market. Um in a down year. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it is I, uh, it, it's, May twelfth, twenty twenty two for the yeah, record.
0: <laughs> for the record. And the you know S P's down eighteen percent and the NASDAQ's down twenty eight. And yeah, it's pretty uh it's a brutal year uh, so far. But that's That's pretty normal, gotta be honest. I mean, you know, we've had three 20% plus good years. So to have a 20% down year, it shouldn't be that surprising to people, but it's never fun. Um, And you know, so our outlook on things is, it's gonna continue to be rough here for a little while. We're in May, as you said, Um, the Fed is raising rates. They probably won't be done raising rates until at least September. And they might continue raising at a quarter point after september um but you know once the fed is mostly out of the way the next thing to worry about is the election and then once the election's out of the way you still only have at that point you only got about six weeks left in the year but you should probably expect a furious rally at that point um the fed will be done hopefully the war in the ukraine will be over maybe and uh yeah, you know, there'll be an opportunity at that point, and the election will be over. There'll be all the things that cause uncertainty, and the market hates uncertainty. It just wants firm footing. It wants a firm foundation, something to stand on. And when you take that away, I don't know how many rate increases there're going to be. I don't know what's going to happen with the war. I don't know what's going to happen with inflation. I don't know if the Fed's going to cause a recession by raising rates too quickly. You know, I, you know, there's so many things the market doesn't know right now, and that's why it's so uneasy. Um, that's why it's down because investors are. Oh, I don't know if I want to be in this market. This is scary. This is a bad time. Um, all of that sort of thing. Um, but there are opportunities when that happens, right? I mean, you know, it wasn't that long ago when I don't like this opportunity, but I'll use it as an example anyway. Netflix was four or five hundred dollars a share, and now it's a hundred. Is that an opportunity? So we look at every one of those opportunities and we say, hey, is this an opportunity? In this case, we said no. We don't like that opportunity. Um, Netflix is now cheap, whereas before it was expensive. But we don't like the future. The future is filled with competition for them, and the past was filled with being the only one doing streaming, which was fantastic for them. So we don't we don't like their future as much. But there's tons of those opportunities right now so combing through those opportunities is what we're doing on a daily basis so the market outlook is i I, I don't think this is going to be as bad of a year as it looks it looks bad now um i do i'm usually optimistic you kind of have to be to be in this business Uh, i have to be a little bit optimistic but with a dose of reality um i think the year will end up okay i think we'll get back to maybe even maybe even a small gain maybe a small loss I don't think it's going to be one of those 2008 kind of years where the market drops 38%. Um, it, it just doesn't feel that way. Uh, so I'm hopeful, uh, and, I, and I think it'll be okay. Uh, like I said, as soon as all of the uncertainty, some of, not all, never want to say all the uncertainty, but as soon as a good portion of the uncertainty is behind us, the market will have an opportunity to rally.
1: Okay. Well, I think that's a great optimistic Point to end on. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for your time today on the show. And yeah. Yeah, thanks, Randy. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks, guys. Stories from the top is your guide to successful business development. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find Edge of Cinema on YouTube. Stories from the Top is an Edge of Cinema production, hosted by Matthew Scura and Jeremy Schmidt. To learn more or get in touch, visit edgeofcinema.com slash podcast.